Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Icarus the Reality with Shane Jones. What's up, weirdos, and welcome to the show. And of course, I mean that in a positive way because I am a weirdo myself. Today, I have an awesome Sasquatch researcher that, believe it or not, this is only the fourth podcast that he's ever been on, and he's a plethora of knowledge, and I really want you guys to hear it. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, but before we get into all of that, got to knock out the front of house stuff as fast as possible because I don't want to pull away from uh, this awesome guest I have for you guys today. So if you guys are enjoying the show and you guys don't mind leaving a review or a rating, I definitely appreciate it. If, uh, if you guys do that on iTunes, of course, I will look for it and I'll get, read it on the show and I'll give you guys a shout out. Uh, if you guys have any friends that are into weird topics like I talk about on the show or you feel that a friend might really enjoy a specific episode of the show, if you guys don't mind sharing it with that friend, I would definitely appreciate it. It's an awesome way to help the show grow. Um, and the only way this show is ever going to grow is with you guys. So if you guys want to get some updates on anything going on with the show, uh, be it new episodes, uh, news and updates going on with the show, all of that, you guys can come and follow on social media. Uh, the one that I'm the most active on is Instagram, of course, and the Facebook kind of just pushes off from the Instagram. So if you guys want to also pop into the Telegram or the Discord, you guys can have some awesome conversations with some awesome people. Uh, still in the process of building those up, of course, and just like uh, the show growing itself, uh, the only way that's ever going to happen is with you guys. So if anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, be it you're an author, researcher, experiencer, open-minded individual whatsoever, uh, whistleblower, conspiracy theorist, any of that, I would love to sit down and have an awesome conversation with you. So don't hesitate shooting me a message on Instagram to set something up, or you guys can also email me at inquiriesourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Uh, your third option, of course, is to go to the link tree and go and fill out the submission form, and that goes directly to my email. Uh, more often than not... Um, Everything that I send out seems to go to the spam or junk folder. So I do respond to every single message. So make sure that uh, my response doesn't get mixed up and lost in your spam or junk folder. Uh, if you guys can't get enough of the content I put out, I do do another show. It's called uh, Bizarre Encounters. And just like the name, we get in-depth with Bizarre Encounters from the experiencer's mouth directly uh, into deep dives. We always got some cool, interesting stuff going on over there. So go and check out Bizarre Encounters with Orin and Jenny, of course, my two awesome co-hosts. And uh, if you guys want to be able to keep tabs on all of the stuff that I'm doing, uh, I do keep everything under Open Minds Media, which I would say is kind of like my uh, product 
podcast production company. So you guys can go and check that out over on Instagram and there you'll get a well-rounded view and update on all of the shows that I do all at once, all in one place. Uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so. You guys can go and join the ranks of the awesome Patreon people, such as Brandy and Brian. Uh, there I have multiple tiers. Uh, you'll get ad-free episodes of the show. You'll get early access to the show. You'll get live access to the show. You'll get access to the live replays, which is if you can't make it to the live, it's the video format of the show, of course. Um, I'm also going to be doing some exclusive giveaways in the future. Um, you also get exclusive merch store discounts if you guys go and check out the Patreon. So go and see which tier fits you the best. And uh, I definitely appreciate seeing you guys over there. Uh, if you guys want to donate to the show directly, uh, you guys can do so through Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. Uh, you can even go to Red Circle, which is the RSS host, and you can donate directly through that, quick and easy. And uh, anything that you guys donate, of course, hopefully your name is included with that, and I will give you guys a shout out on the show because all that is going directly towards the show. So because of your guys' help, that's what's going to get the show to be, get to a point where it has even better sound quality. Um, I can get updated equipment, eventually, hopefully update this uh almost 10 year old laptop that I'm using. <laughs> but you know, I make it work with what I got because uh, I want to put out this awesome show for you guys. So uh, the third way, of course, that you can support the show is by going and checking out the Open Minds Media merch store where you'll find merchandise for all the different shows that I do. And I do request that if any of you guys go and get anything off of there, please send me a picture of you guys wearing the t-shirt, of course, even if it doesn't include your face, if you don't want that, I would definitely love to give you guys a shout out on the page and uh, show that there's love and support out in the world for, uh, for all the shows that I'm doing. Uh, if you guys want to show some love and support for some other creators, you guys can go and check out Joe over at Crypto Theology. Always killing it over there with all of his uh, cryptid, paranormal, alien, different designs. Always adding stuff, of course. So I'm guarantee you guys will find something you like if you uh, go and check out the website and scroll through all of his many selections of a lot of different awesome merchandise. And uh, all of everything that I've mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Inquiries of Our Reality Podcast, or you guys can go and check that out down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, Matt Arner from Cryptic Wilderness. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me on the show tonight. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you guys. So uh, for anybody that isn't familiar with who you are and what you do, why don't you kind of give them a rough idea about what exactly you get into? Sure. Um, I run a, uh, a Facebook page and a Twitter uh, handle for Cryptic Wilderness. Uh, originally, I was intending it to be more about folklore mythology with some cryptozoology in there um but as it progressed over over time it, it's really gotten more into uh basically steady cryptozoology specifically uh the research of uh, sasquatch and along with that um i've also brought my love of the outdoors into it as well um we're doing our research out in the wild so uh what i like to do is uh put information in there about being safe in, uh, when you're out in the uh, backcountry, uh, along with some great research uh, tips and ideas as well. Um, the one thing is, is uh, I do work as a police officer. I'm still employed as a police officer. Um, I'm actually in the criminal investigations division. 
I do a lot of forensics and I am uh, trained as a crime scene technician. So what I do is I take a lot of the skill set that I learned from that and I apply that to the research uh, that I do when we're out collecting evidence. Uh, the nice thing is, and the way I explain it to my chief and uh, to, to uh, others is whether I'm out here doing Bigfoot research or I'm doing any sort of wildlife research, I'm still keeping my skills intact uh, by going out and casting prints, by collecting DNA, by collecting hair samples. So with that, um, I, I pretty much have gotten you know a big okay to do this. And I'm also teaching uh, others uh, what they can do for uh, the proper collection of evidence, um, as well as, uh, you know, what to do after uh, you do collect it. So uh, there's kind of a lot in there, uh, but uh, I really enjoy what I do. And uh, just uh, whether I'm out there in the mountains, in the backcountry, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, if I'm doing research or I'm, I'm just going out there to uh, enjoy nature, I, I'm still blessed when I'm out there. So, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, with the career that I've had, it's, uh, you know, we, we do see a lot of trauma. We do see a lot of uh, uh, really horrible, horrible things, especially when we're coming in after the fact um, as a crime scene investigator. So being out in the woods like this really, um, you know, helps the soul. So uh, uh, I do try to, again, um, impress upon others, you know, to go out and spend time in the woods and, uh, again, to do it uh, safely. And probably that's the police officer and me talking. So It's a really cool thing that you're actually an active officer and that you do yes. this cryptid research. Because more often than not, yes. it seems that most of the time it's usually retired police officers that get into it, maybe because of being scrutinized through work. But it's kind of cool that you kind of get to keep up with the current on what's actually going on in like the active investigating world. So then sure. you can translate it over versus like a retired officer who would you know not really be necessarily up to date on the new new things in forensics so it's really yes. cool that you're able to kind of converge the two and in turn go seeing such like traumatic situations um you get to like kind of free yourself but also do the parts of your job that you probably actually enjoy which kind of inspired you to do the job in the first place absolutely absolutely and the one thing is is uh it, it's always changing and I know some things are coming down the pike um, in terms of forensics that are going to absolutely blow things out of the water, especially when it comes to uh, uh, wildlife research, uh, Sasquatch research, uh, that um, really uh, in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be an exciting time, um, particularly when it comes to casting prints. So, that is something that, uh, again, is going to be a, a big thing, but, um, but we, I won't be able to afford, uh, some of the, uh, uh, software and the computers needed to, to do this, but, um, you know, perhaps there are others out there that, that would be able to, uh, you know, uh, take that up. And if we collectively get together and, and put, uh, everything together, we can really come up with some, you know, very interesting stuff. Uh, just kind of an educated guess is the new kind of updated technology for casting prints something that maybe like 3d maps it and then it like prints it out on like a 3d printer rather than like putting a cast in the ground so you can get a, a little bit cleaner of a like a shot of it 
Absolutely. Uh, they've been using LiDAR technology along with the 3D printers. Uh, however, the cost right now is uh, very prohibitive. So more or less, you know, we're still doing it the old fashioned way, which is uh, now we don't use cast, uh, plaster. We're using uh, actually a dental stone when we cast our prints. Um, but uh, as we uh, are getting more technologically uh, advanced, um, they have been using the LIDAR techniques uh, and uh, doing the 3D printing after it's done. And and what has been coming out has been absolutely amazing. Uh, the one thing is, too, is that when you do the LIDAR techniques um, and you do the 3D print, you're not going to get uh, some of the detritus materials uh, that are in that may be absorbed into the plaster or into the uh, dental stone. So you're going to get a really nice, clean, uh, you know, print uh, from that LiDAR scan. It, but right now, uh, the computers, you can do a, a general LiDAR scan right now, but to really get it to the point that it's going to be um, able to be presented in a court of law, uh, it, that technology is still a little bit behind, but it's getting there. Is it talking about being able to possibly see actual like fingerprints? So maybe even like with yes. Sasquatch cast, you might actually be able to see like markings on the toes and not just like the shape of the toe rather? With the right uh, computers and the right software, yes. You're going to be able to get extremely uh, detailed um, uh, recordings from the LiDAR, which are going to then... I uh, give um, you know uh, just an excellent impression once it's once it's made from uh, you know uh, through a 3D printer or by other means. So, kind of bringing it back a little bit, um, yeah. as, as far as being like a police officer, is that is what you were doing as a police officer? What inspired you to kind of get into Sasquatch, or were you into Sasquatch ahead of time? No. Like, where did, where did your no, uh, I was fascination start? Yeah, you know what? I was uh, I was fascinated with it when I was a little kid, and um, my uh, my dad was a naval officer, and uh, he was actually a pilot. Uh, uh, you know, during the Cold War, and my mom would you know try to you know find things for us to do. Um, one of the things that we'd always do is uh, Friday or Saturday nights we'd go to the movie theater on base. And I remember being a young kid and seeing for the first time Legend of Boggy Creek. And I hate to say that, bring up this person's name, but because I guess it's a bad name in the Bigfoot world, but the Ivan Marks movie, um, that actually wasn't like, you know, for me as a young kid, and even just watching it uh, not that long ago, like that Ivan Marks movie, it, it, it talked about nature it talked about you know other uh, you know just being out in the woods and and having that but um you know then again we you know of course i'm five or six years old and i didn't realize that the cripple foot you know uh, uh um uh, video that it was brought forth you know was not real but you know what do i know you know but um but it still piqued my interest as a, as a young kid. When I was 10 years old, um, on my personal Facebook page, which uh, if you guys send me a friend request, I'll accept it. But on my personal Facebook page, um, every couple of years, I'll post up when I was 10 years old, I put up a 
um, uh, part of our school project was to do a book. Where do you see yourself in 30 years? And where I saw myself and where I put uh, the information in the book was I was going to be a park ranger. I was going to live out in the woods and I was going to hunt for Bigfoot. And one <laughs> of the pictures I have is me at a, like a fire tower. It's very crudely drawn though, because I was only 10 years old, but um, with a Bigfoot there. So, and I even drew it with the big feet. So, which was kind of funny. That's um, awesome. I probably would have framed that, that and put it up just for the sake of it. <laughs> I, I still have, I, I have that book and one of these days I definitely plan on doing that. Um, but, uh, that really, you know, was something that I enjoyed. I was always into, uh, you know, from a young kid, you know, horror movies, uh, you know, it, it was funny cause it was horror movies or being out in the woods. One of the two, I was really, really, uh, you know, was the best for me. So, Combining the two um, brings a whole other type of excitement. <laughs> it does. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So anyways, um, my mom, she really, uh, you know, she was busy because, uh, you know, my dad was uh, always way on, on flights. Um, you know, she had other kids she had to raise, but she knew I kind of was into like horror movies and stuff, but she didn't really know about the Bigfoot stuff. When I was in eighth grade, so I would have been like 13, 14 years old. Um, she had taken a job at um, an industrial park that was out in a, a fairly rural area. And sometimes she would have to work nights. Uh, you know, they would put um, little, those gifts together that you would get from like, you know, uh, uh, free gifts, uh, you know, from like uh, a pharmacology place or, you know, like the, little gift the, baskets. the little free uh, tidbits. Yeah, you'd get. So she went out to work one night and I guess it was around seven o'clock at night. She came right back home and this is before cell phones. She came right back home. My dad got home and she said to my dad, she was like, I just saw a monster. And of course, you know, my ears peaked up <laughs> and she mentioned that she was on her way to the, uh, to the industrial park. There was um, a patch of woods uh, that was off to the right. And to the left was a farm with a pond, a bunch of reeds around the pond, and then it uh, it was basically uh, cornfields. And uh, for about another maybe uh, six, seven hundred yards, and she said that she was coming down this road. This monster, as she described it, walked out from the woods, took about three steps across the road, and went into the area where the reeds were uh, by the pond. So. As we're talking about a little more, and well, of course, what she did was she she grabbed my dad and they went out driving. They wouldn't let me go. I was very, very <laughs> upset, extremely upset that I had to stay home. But mom, I know what it dad, is. <laughs> I know. I know. But my <clears throat> my dad went out with her and they looked. They, they didn't see anything. Um, but she came back and she described it. And. My mom is, uh, the way I described her on another show, she's kind of, you know, she grew up in the, in the 50s and the 60s in a very rural, uh, you know, almost like West Virginia type, you know, hollow type, you know, coal mining community. And uh, they were very, you know, I guess conservative. And, you know, so she really didn't like people with long hair. And she said, oh, my God, this thing had long hair. It looked like. 
it looked like a guitar player of Leonard Skinner, you know, <laughs> the way uh, the hair was all long and scraggly. And, but she described it that he was, uh, what she saw was something that had a, a, a long, you know, bushy head hair. Um, the hair on the body uh, looked to be matted, um, uh, that there may have been, you know, leaves attached to it or mud. And she said it looked down at her and she said it looked like, you know, it looked like a person, but she knew it wasn't a person. And the fact that it took three steps across, you know, your, your typical, you know, uh, 22 foot road, you know, really kind of made her think. She didn't say how tall he was, but she just said it was big. In one of those high so, stress situations where things happen kind of uh, fast, it's really, really hard to really tell height like that, though. It is. It is. Especially if you don't, especially in a road where you don't have that measurement, you know, that, okay, here's a telephone pole that it passed by, or here's a tree that it passed by. I can, I can say by, you know, by this branch that, you know, it was about six and a half feet tall. Um, there was nothing like that. It, it, it was just woods and in the reeds. So, that was really, uh, I mean, that really kind of got the blood pumping. And I would always read every single book I can find uh, on Bigfoot. A lot of the, and this is back in the 80s, I remember getting the John Green book. And, uh, you know, reading that from cover to cover, I read it probably eight or nine times. You know, I always had it in my, uh, in my little, you know, reading spot. So I'd have books like that uh, that I would read. And, um, even through high school, I was always kind of, kind of into it and, you know, thought it was fun to, to go out in the woods and, but we weren't really Bigfoot hunters back then. This was like in the eighties, nineties, we were still kind of, we didn't really know a lot, you know, the only thing I knew is that, you know, he, you know, Bigfoot may live in, uh, uh, Washington and Oregon, but they may be out here, um, and of course, we also had the other mythology around here, such as the Jersey Devil and a few other, you know, cryptids that, um, you know, kind of piqued my interest as well. But uh, really, back then, we had no, like, library, you know, we had no internet to go to. So finally, <clears throat> I graduated high school, went through college, didn't really do too much Bigfoot stuff back then. But then once the internet really started kind of getting bigger, like in the, in the late nineties, um, I started following the, the BFRO page and I started looking at reports and finding that there were reports that weren't that far from where I live. And so it was interesting to see. And, um, I really didn't get a lot about the actual research back then. You know, it was more, I'm just you know, seeing the reports like sightings and encounters rather than like theories and ideas. Correct. Correct. So we didn't know anything back then about, uh, tree knocks. We didn't know anything uh, back then about different types of howls or different, you know, uh, different vocalizations. The only thing we knew was, you know, just, you know, people would see it or, you know, they'd hear things and, or there might be tracks that were found. Um, but as things kind of progressed, uh, I guess it was in the early 2000s, I was uh, working with a paranormal, uh, a guy that was doing paranormal work, and he had an interest in Bigfoot. So I said, hey, you know what? I know a place where there was a, a, a sighting back in the early uh, 90s. I said, why don't we go out there and check it out? And we went out there. And the one thing is, uh, we went up to a, the top of a remote ridge, 
And I ended up finding what I now at this point, you know, in, in my uh, amount of research, I believed was a nest. Um, it, it was not your typical tree structure, but this was probably, I'd say, uh, at least eight foot in circumference. And it was all matted down. Trees were, were matted down. But the one thing that really kind of caught me was that some of the trees, uh, tree branches were intertwined. So, but back then, you know, I didn't really know, you know, like, you know, we just noted it and that was about it. Um, I do have some other interesting stories about the paranormal group. Uh, I got involved with another paranormal group and, and I'll touch on that in a little bit, but uh I was the Bigfoot guy. So if people came out and said that they saw something or, you know, they had an experience, uh, they would contact the paranormal group and I'd basically be the person to take everyone out. And it's funny because, and I could kick myself for not having recording, you know, not keeping the recordings, but there was times that we heard something that sounded just like the Ohio howl when we had put recorders out and now like i can't say it was now but it was when i first was made aware of the actual ohio howl and i said oh my god i've heard this before on one of my recordings (laughs) and i'll tell you what the the hair stood up on the back of my neck i'm like Oh my God, you know, I may have had some really good vocalizations, but I didn't, I'm thinking that it was a coyote or, uh, you know, something else. Uh, I just couldn't put my, uh, put my hand on what exactly it was, but we ended up getting, uh, you know, vocalizations even back then. Um, so I kind of was still doing that. And then I was doing some work with the paranormal group. And then I just said, you know what, I'm done with the paranormal stuff. Um, I had a bad experience with the paranormal, so I'll tell you about that uh, later on. But um, then I ended up basically uh, getting involved with the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, uh, which was run at the time with uh, Eric Altman, who was a fantastic uh, researcher, fantastic source of knowledge. And the one person I met from the PBS was Sean Forker. And I had not ever met this guy before in my life. Um, we went to a Bigfoot conference. I knew no one there, you know, I just went there because, you know, they were having this Bigfoot uh, conference out in Clearfield, Pennsylvania. And I had Eric and his buddies come up and, you know, basically invite me into their, you know, into their little circle with open arms. And, uh, that was the start of a great friendship And and, uh, Sean is, uh, such a great source of information, um, He's been a great research uh, 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 mentor and partner, and uh, you know I'm, I'm just really lucky I, I I got to be friends with him, and uh, and it still goes on today. We're still doing research, uh, we're still going out there uh, doing our things, and uh, you know seeing what we can come up with. So um, as I got involved with Sean, I at that point I started getting more serious uh, about uh, the work I was doing. Um, I was looking at different game cameras at the time. And now game cameras are primarily looked at as 
not something that that works with uh, Sasquatch repellent. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, um, so I was doing that, and uh, but I was also working them with audio as well, and uh, just um, you know, I kind of found my niche with the type of research that I do. So I know some people are go out there and they're very active. Uh, they're out there, you know, doing calls. They're out there doing tree knocks. Um, I am more of a passive researcher. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I like to go out to these areas, um, especially areas where there's high activity. And what I like to do is just hang out and chill, you know, like, uh, you know, especially in the ANF, we were talking earlier before the recording about the Allegheny National Forest. Uh, is a spectacular area for research. Um, the one nice thing about the Allegheny National Forest, as opposed to Pennsylvania State Forest, is there's a lot of um, campsites out there that you can just go to. They have fire pits. Uh, as long as it's not during a season where you can't have a fire, you can get a big bonfire going. And uh, basically, you know, you can just hang out around the campfire. And sometimes some of the best activity happens when you're just relaxed, having fun, you know, or you're, you're quiet, you know, completely quiet, but still maintaining, uh, your senses, you know, your, 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 your hearing, your sight, um, is still maintaining that, uh, you can get some great, great activity from that. It's more so rather like calling him in than kind of baiting him away because I almost feel like if you're doing tree knocks too much and you're kind of following, you're almost like pushing him away from you where yes. if you're just kind of sitting and relaxing, then I'm sure just like us, like their curiosity factor kind of comes in and rather than wanting to avoid it, they kind of at least want to sit around and kind of peek in and at least kind of see what you're doing and figure it out for themselves. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, there's so many reports from... Uh, you know, from people uh, that come forward that say they were just sitting around the campfire or they were, they were at their tent or even with hunters, you know, they were sitting in a tree stand. Um, it's very few that we get hunters that are, you know, doing what we call still hunting, which is when they go out and they, they, you know, walk about five feet, they stop, they walk another five feet and stop. You don't really get too many reports from them, but you get more reports um, from hunters, from those that are sitting up in tree stands or sitting in, in blinds where there's, you know, might be, they might get that inkling that there's some activity there because they're either catching scent or they may have seen movement or heard something uh, throughout the day. So they want to come check that out. Um, if they know that somebody's going through the woods, uh, whether it's in the middle of the night, um, even with your red light on uh, or your, you know, doing a spot, and, you know, spot and stock for uh, hunting, they probably are aware of you, and they're probably not going to, you know, make themselves, you know, as known as they would if you're up in a tree or hiding in a blind or maybe sitting at a campfire. So, uh, not to deter away too much from the Sasquatch sure. stuff, because I definitely want to keep digging into the Sasquatch stuff. Oh, yeah, but, uh, absolutely. I'd love to get into your paranormal experience that made it so sure. you want to avoid the paranormal. <laughs> sure, sure, no problem. Well, the one thing is, I'll, I'll tell you about a work-related paranormal experience, which was actually really, really cool. Um, we had an old uh, building in our town that was an old high school, and uh, the school was built in the... Uh, uh, I think it was 1911 was when the, the building was, it was actually completed. 
it had been a wooden, uh, like, you know, one of these old log schools uh, prior to that. So what happened was uh, they had since long since uh, moved to a, a new building. The building was basically sitting, uh, you know, run down, but the, uh, the town was getting ready to, uh, you know, redo the, uh, the building. One thing that we were having a lot of problems with was kids were coming into the building at night and, you know what? I don't blame them, you know, so much, but there was an old swimming pool at the bottom. Now, if you're a young kid and there's this private swimming pool that's empty and you own a skateboard, <laughs> that's, that's what I was like the ultimate, thinking. you know? So <laughs> we used to chase it. And I was always going because when I grew up, I was, I, I, I rode BMX, uh, did some skateboarding. So I was, uh, I wasn't one of these people I would sit there and, you know, but I'd have to tell them, Hey, you know, you have to get out of there. So we got a call that there was people that were inside the building. So I ended up calling uh, my partner in and we actually had to call a third person, uh, a, a third officer in to, uh, to because it was such a big building. So we're going up floor to floor. There was, we heard nothing. We get up to the second floor, which was basically the top floor of the building. And, I'm up there and I see this thing that's black and what, how I described it was it looked like, um, you see those people where there were those like nylon suits, you know, that are like green or white, you know, where the face is the covered morph suits, the morph suits. Yeah. It was like somebody wearing a black suit like that. And I seen them kind of lean out into the hallway and then duck right back in. And so I called my partner. I'm like, yo, 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 I got somebody up here. I got somebody up here. So he stations himself at uh, the one side. Now these buildings, <clears throat> these rooms, uh, they had borders up. So uh, without the borders, they, they were actually fairly large rooms. So I had him uh, stationed at the one end. I was coming in on the other end. And I said, all right, on the count of three, we're going to go in, hit our lights and, you know, get whoever's in here out. So we go in and <clears throat> one, two, three, we go in. There is no one there. So I was like, wow, you know, what's going on here? And then I found out that the third officer who was down in the basement area said that he kept hearing footsteps when he was down there. And he was like, where are you guys? We're like, we're up on the second floor. He was like, no, there's footsteps that are like right here. And there's no one here making those footsteps. So <laughs> we did some research and we ended up finding out that there was uh, um, a few deaths uh, attributed uh, to that building. So um, we were doing uh, public investigations, helping the town out. And uh, it really, really was a good thing. So that was kind of a positive uh, thing. And we've never had anything negative happen there. It was always very good spirits there. So we were happy about that. But we went to, um, our group was doing uh, research at a house that was outside of town. Um, it, they had uh before the actual house was built, again, there was another building there. There was a, 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 a major figure from that town that had shot himself uh, down the basement. Um, in the 1911, it, it was, uh, well, it was 1900. It was a, a hotel, 1911 to 19, well, maybe a little later, maybe 1915. 
it was uh, basically like a convalescent home for World War One veterans. And there was a doctor there that was doing research. We don't know what kind of research he was doing. Um, that it gets even better because the house was bought by a female in the 1930s. Now, what's so strange about that is in our area, this is, again, a very conservative area, females weren't really allowed to buy houses back then. You know, it was kind of frowned upon. So she bought it and it was a hotel. Well, as everyone, you know, kind of figured out and put two and two together, it was what back in the day they called a cat house. So that was your local brothel. Um, her name was Helen. And Helen was in her 30s when she died. Um, she was deathly afraid of having surgeries done. She ended up having an appendix surgery and she died a few days later of an infection. Helen had a daughter in who she called Helen also. Helen ended up living into the 19, late 80s, early 90s. That Helen was basically a psychic. She did seances in the house. She had the crystal ball. She did all sorts of crazy things in there. So um, the people that came in after the second Helen passed away uh, had said, hey, we got all sorts of crazy things happening here. We can't even you know, really fix this place up. We're afraid to come in. First night we go in, uh, I, I saw a full-figure apparition. We're sitting there. It was only me and another uh, male. <clears throat> and three females that were in there. And as we're in there, you're sitting there looking at like, you know, uh, the walls were all torn down. And I saw somebody walking on the other side of the wall with a flannel shirt on and black pants. <clears throat> and I said, no, wait, who else is in here? And there was no one else in there. Um, that very first night, the other guy that I was with, he went down to the basement. He put a recorder in. And he was kind of a goofy guy. He was like, hey, my name's Bob, and I'm from this paranormal group. And if you're here, you know, here's a little device. You can talk into it, and we'd love to hear from you. He puts it down on the, uh, uh, on the uh, basement floor, and he walks away. As soon as he walks away, we get a very explicit EVP that was directed directly at him. So it basically said, F you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so in a very deep, angry voice. So we had done a lot of research because we had so much activity there. Um, and it's funny because I mentioned the two Helens. Helen would, uh, the older Helen, uh, who was the daughter, you know, sometimes she would make herself known you know, to, to some of the other people, we went upstairs to the second floor where mom, Helen would, would normally be. And we would be up there and we would smell, it would only be the guys that could smell perfume and the girls would not be able to smell it. And we were like, Oh my God, who has this perfume on? And they're like, no one's wearing perfume. You know, we can't smell anything, but me and we would bring a, a, a third male, a third, you know, guy up. We're like, oh my God, this smells like perfume. And there was one or two times where, you know, you actually felt a hand, you know, going like this or, you know, on your back, but it wasn't like, you know, scaring. It was more, you know, like trying to comfort you. So we always said, oh, mom, Helen was actually the, the nice Helen, you know, and then, daughter Helen was actually the kind of like crankier person. But anyways, 
I had been up there one night and uh, I came home and uh, I had a just a, a very vivid, lucid dream, which I didn't at the time I said, no, this wasn't a dream. And uh, basically, uh, you know, it was I, I was attacked by something that that came home. Uh, uh, with me and you know we always tried to cleanse you know before we I'd say a prayer um, sometimes so that didn't work and uh, something came after me that night and I said all right that's it <laughs> you know <laughs> I'll help out you know during the day but as for that particular uh, place it was called Brony's Hotel uh, B-R-O-N-E-Y-S um, and there may be some documentation on it, uh, but it was really a, a fascinating place. But it, uh, when that followed me home, I said, all right, that's, <clears throat> I'd rather have Bigfoot come in, you know, uh, uh, do a bluff charge at me than, than have to go through that again. So at least you know what you're dealing what, with versus something yeah, that absolutely. you can't really interact with or do anything to if it wants to come yes. after you. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I, and like I've told other people about the specific details of it, and I really don't go into too too deep of it. But uh, basically, you know, it was it was this thing, and <clears throat> it attacked. You know, in my lucid dream, it attacked me. When I opened my eyes, I saw something black go out the window. So I said, "All right, that's that's it. You know, that place is done. <laughs> you know, I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay out there. If I get a couple ticks on me, or you know, if I get a snake bite by in, you know, I'm at least I know, you know. Um, but yeah, as for as for that, heck no, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm done with that. So, um, but I always again with this paranormal group, I always uh, would take them out in the woods." We would do our own mini expeditions out through there before the Finding Bigfoot came out, um, you know, before, you know, Bigfooting really became more into ingrained in popular culture. So a lot of times I would get people saying, oh, my God, this, this is like the weirdest thing. But um, at the same point, I always say, hey, listen, you know, we may be out here. There may be something uh, out here like a Bigfoot. Or it may be something completely different. We may, you know, be on the verge of discovering a new, uh, new species of animal, a new species of ape. Um, you know, we could be, you know, really uh, helping science out, you know, as best we could in, in doing this. So obviously nobody really knows the answer to the question. And for me, it mm -hmm. constantly changes when I have more information. But at least where you sit yeah. right now, what, what's kind of your idea of Sasquatch? What, what do you think it is? Well, um, I'm kind of in, uh, in the line that, uh, I, I know some people have said that it's, uh, like Australia, uh, Australopithecus. Um, I can't say that fast three times, um, <laughs> it, it, but it could be something like that or Gigantopithecus. I do think that it is a living, breathing animal. Um, I do believe that it is closely related to humans. Um, whether it's uh, a missing link or if it's just something that branched off from another tree, 
uh, we're not going to know until until we get you know more data. You know whether it's DNA, um, you know finding a body, you know anything like that. But I do believe that it is a real uh, a living thing. The one thing is, is and I I would tell my friends about this analogy. It it may not be as true now, uh, but it was more so about 10, 15 years ago is in Pennsylvania, we have all these coyotes uh, living amongst us. And I always say to people, have you seen a coyote? Have you seen a coyote during the day? And have you found a coyote body in the woods? You know, and we did have guys that would go out and do coyote hunting. They're experts in that. They know what they're doing. Um, but to the general person, um, even even people that were out in the woods every day, they never saw a coyote. Even though we have this uh, basically a prolific population of coyotes here in Pennsylvania, that's something you don't see every day. Um it took me, I think it was in like 2001, where I saw my first coyote during the day. But at that same point, we had such a big population of them, uh, and but no one, no one really got to see them all that much. It was just basically people that were out in the woods at night would go out and see these coyotes. So I say, all right, now a coyote is about as smart as your, your regular dog, uh, probably maybe as smart as a border collie, which is one of the smartest animals, uh, smartest dogs. Now you talk about something that maybe we have a small population. Maybe there's only 20,000 in North America and you have something that's very intelligent, you know, that's more so intelligent than, than a canine and, you know, maybe uh, as intelligent as, as humans that doesn't want to be seen knows that contact with people isn't a good thing for them. Um, they're going to stay hidden. And another analogy I bring to that is I've been involved with, you know, manhunts. I've been involved with looking for people. And when somebody wants to hide, they're not going to be found, you know, quite as easily. So, uh, you know, many years ago, we were involved with uh, the Eric Freen uh, manhunt, uh, which was through the, uh, you know, basically the swamps of the Poconos. And with that, I mean, you know, there were sightings of him, you know, uh, maybe once or twice, you know, in, in a 24 hour period. But uh, even with the best technology that we had back then, we couldn't find him. You know, it was only until, uh, you know, we got a tip that he was in uh, basically an abandoned uh, hotel complex that uh, the marshals were able to, uh, to actually get him cornered. So, uh, you know, but I mean, he literally, you know, went about, you know, 30 to 40 miles on foot in the middle of the woods and, you know, even with uh FLIR and everything else uh, he was, he was able to, uh, to keep hidden. So if you have something, if you have an animal, um, you know, with even just a, uh, a again, a, a, an intelligence that's, that may be close to us uh, and they know that, you know, being in the middle of town isn't, isn't the best thing for them, but being out in the middle of nowhere is um, that, animal could probably stay hidden fairly well, even in, in, even in North America. 
I mean, even going back to the intelligence factor when it comes to the bodies, <clears throat> if they are intelligent like us, I mean, they could be they could be one either burying their bodies, they could be moving their d ones that are starting to be sick and dying into like different yes. caves, things like that. Um, yes. Assumably, they're not going to be eating each other because if they're more on the intelligent side, I don't really see intelligent animals as doing that. But even just Correct. something as simple as just a new random mound that's in the middle of the woods, that could be the burial mounds. We could be walking all over them all the time and never even realize it. And, and again, uh, I always tell people, especially when they ask, where are the bones? Where are the bones? Find me a bear bone. You know, there's a lot of, there's 20,000 bears in the woods of Pennsylvania. I, I think at the, the last count, there should be a dead bear laying around. Please find me uh, that skeleton and I'll take it, you know, and I'll, and I, I, there's just so many places that humans, even in, in Pennsylvania, that, that humans may have stepped foot on a hundred years ago, but nobody may have stepped foot on, on that same ground in, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. So it's always possible that, yeah, they they could be hiding uh, the bones in the bodies. They could be burying them. Uh, they, or they could just find a place like, you know, like another wild animal, just find a place where, uh, where they know that, you know, they're not going to be able to live any longer. And, you know, that's kind of hidden away and, you know, just go like that. So uh, that's common with dogs. If you, if you notice with dogs, uh, you know, sometimes at the end of life, you know, they'll, they'll find a spot like behind, a, uh, behind a couch or, you know, in a, in, in a corner that that's not really, you know, used all that much, uh, because, you know, it, it just goes back to that instinct. Uh, so it really is a, you know, I, I, I think that's probably what's happening, but again, you can also have it that, uh, that, you know, they probably are, you know, doing something with those bodies. I mean, even if something like spontaneous happened and one of them died and no other one was around to be able to actually do anything with the body, if it's that deep in the woods, you got to take into consideration how many other apex predators there are and other scavengers there are. So, I mean, if yes. you leave a body in the middle of the woods, no matter where it is, I guarantee you there's going to be so many different animals that eat it that within a couple of days time, it probably won't even be recognizable anymore. I uh, my the first podcast I did was uh, it was about two years ago I think and I haven't done many others so <laughs> this is only the third one I've done but the it was with uh, Sean and his group with uh, the Sasquatch Experience and when I was talking to them I brought up uh, about the body they call it the body farm which is in Texas and what that is is a research area where for forensics. Um, where people who dedicate their bodies uh, uh, to uh, science, uh, they their bodies may come to the body farm, and what they do is they'll put the bodies in certain conditions to see how long it deteriorates, to see uh, what happens there. And there's been quite a few times that they found white-tailed deer actually, you know, taking nubs of, <laughs> you know, uh, of human flesh, you know. So protein once that. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have deer, you have other scavengers, you know, um, uh, so you have that just taking care of the tissues and then you have the bones themselves. And usually in Pennsylvania, I know we have a lot of porcupine and porcupine, they live on, on animal bones. So uh, that is one of their, their absolute favorites. So um, you know, you get porcupines in that mix and basically, you know, there could be nothing left, uh, <clears throat> down South, you have feral hogs, 
feral hogs will eat just about everything, you know, from the body. So it's very possible, especially if they're in an area that, uh, you know, has this type of wildlife there. And why wouldn't they be in that area? You know, they're going to want to be in an area like that because that other wildlife is also food for them. You know, whether it's the wild, the feral hogs or, or the deer or, uh, you know, they're in, even if they're more, uh, more of an omnivore leaning towards uh, vegetarianism, there still is going to be other animals there that, again, will, uh, will probably uh, feast on them after they pass. I mean, even theoretically, too, people talk about how there's the whole nature aspect to them where they may even be kind of like overseers of nature, depending on how like intelligent you get with it. So that being said, they may even intentionally like give their body when one of them passes away to the other animals in the woods as as food. I mean, it could be something as simple as that. And that's an intelligence, something to do. And it gets rid of any kind of evidence, assumably, too, because if they are intelligent, they're not going to want to leave anything behind regardless, because it's just another step for people figuring them out and possibly hunting them down. Correct. Correct. And and, and that that is an excellent point. And I know even for me, like, you know, like, uh, you know, God forbid when I pass, you know, I, I have it that, you know, I either want to be cremated and, you know, return to the uh, ocean or plant me in one of those urns, you know, like, you know, my ashes in those urns and, you know, for the tree and you can have it on another level like that, you know, where, you know, again, you know, they may, they may know, okay, Hey, listen, you know, at the ends now, boom, you know, and they go to an area where, they're going to replenish, you know, the world. So uh, that's very much of a possibility. Just another theory too, that uh, somebody might have to try out actually, because I don't know if anybody's ever actually tried this, but when you find the weird structures in the woods and they're the ones that don't seem like it's something that something should be able to really get into. I mean, Mm -hmm. those could possibly even be some type of like burial markers. If there's turned up ground near that or inside of it, maybe somebody should start trying to dig into that and see if there happened to find any, anything underneath it. Absolutely. Uh, the one thing is, is I'm kind of hoping that one of these days we get, uh, we were talking earlier about forensics and uh, if we can get uh, ground penetrating radar that's uh, that falls in price, you know, we saw thermal, you know, fall in price pretty, pretty rapidly. But if we can find something like ground penetrating radar that, that we can utilize like that, um, you know, who knows what we're going to end up finding out in those woods. And the one thing is, is I know from looking at that, um, the body still decomposes. Uh, and basically what you're going to have is you're going to have like a hollowed, hollowed out area um, where those bones are going to be found. So, which will be a good indication of how, you know, big the person or, or uh, the object was that was uh, put into that hole. I almost kind of wonder too if there's a lot of sightings of them being in caves. So mm-hmm. when you get into some kind of like weird deep spots in caves, or even just theoretically, if they have as much strength as they do, they could even back themselves into a cave somewhere, uh, roll a rock in front of where they're going to be. So maybe just another theory that people could start trying if they know that there's known Sasquatch in this area and that they're around this certain cave, um, maybe even try to bring a group of people in there and see if there's any stones that look like they're blocking entrances that were like recently put there like maybe there's some other markings yes. just maybe another theory they intentionally block themselves off not intending to really come back out again sure well i know that where we you know we're kind of in like a certain geographical area that um i i know with my area we have a lot of mines but 
like when you look at the um, mid southern United States, uh, West Virginia, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, you have a lot of caves down there and a lot of basically undiscovered cave systems. So uh, uh, that I think would be a spectacular spot. Uh, for for people to uh, to do investigation, uh, just to look for, um, you know, they're not going to be looking so much for the activity, but looking for the evidence that that something was there. And uh, again, that would be uh, that would be a fantastic. I, I'm not great with confined spaces, so I'm going to stay I'm out the in the same. woods. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, if we have people that, that are okay with confined spaces and uh, and and going through caves, you know, it, that's definitely a, a, a great spot to uh, to look. Need to find a group of those people that like cramming themselves through the caves, where it's like it's a sport yes. to see how small of a hole you can get into. Yes, and uh, yep. start taking them on a Sasquatch trip. So at least you got one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, a couple things I'm working with in terms of research. Um, I've been uh, right now. I've been. Uh, I do have a couple long duration recorders uh, that are out in the Allegheny National Forest, which is one of my main research areas. Uh, and, um, so I'll, I'm actually going up to the cabin, uh, this weekend. So I'm going to go up and see if I can, I can get to them. Um, but, uh, I know one thing that I'm going to be definitely pushing forward on in, uh, you know, both my Facebook page, uh, and my Twitter is again, with the safety of being out in the woods right now, I'm working on a video, um, of uh, using uh, Onyx maps on your cell phone as a GPS. So I don't know how it is out in your area. I know with me, I go to an area where there's absolutely no cell service Um, because of the way the mountains are, uh, the cell signals just don't travel uh, uh, where they're at. So um, you're highly, you know, you have to rely on satellite communications, um, or you rely on a GPS. So I've been using my phone as a GPS through Onyx Maps to make sure that you know I get out to my spot safely and I get back safely. So you know that's one other thing I try to emphasize in my research is to try to do it as safe as possible. Um, try not to uh, being a first responder. You know, try not to you know, uh, get into a spot where you're going to have to call out, you know, uh, a volunteer fire company, state police and, and a helicopter to try to find you, you know, <laughs> to try to, uh, make sure that you're safe and, you know, you have a plan, uh, you let other people know where you're going to be, um, you know, family members. So that if something bad does happen, you know, they know exactly where to find you. Um, that's kind of my, my little safety speech, uh, talking about Bigfoot research. But, actually, uh, two-part question pertaining yeah. to that, actually. Yeah. I know everybody's, of course, probably wondering if you've ever actually seen a Sasquatch like with your eyes in person. And then another part to that, um, when it comes to the safety aspect of it, yeah. what do you think are the most important things that people should have with them when they go and do these things? Uh, just so that we can kind of give people a well-rounded, safe way about going going about it. Um, like, sure. What would be like the top supplies I would bring? And then yes. besides, of course, having a GPS... Uh, what what are, your, are the most important like safety tips as far as like when you're yourself are out there doing it? Absolutely, and, and great questions. I'll go through with the first one. Um, I've never uh, haven't seen one 
directly in front that I could say that was a Bigfoot. Um, I did have an, an experience with my wife when we weren't Bigfooting. You know, that was the crazy. That was like that's how it always part. seems to happen. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we were actually um, out at a cabin in Elk County, and it was a, a pretty remote cabin. And the only way you can get in and out is you would have to um, put your uh, luggage on a on a cart. You know, carted in about three, 400 yards and then uh, to your cabin. And you were kind of out there, you know, pretty remote. Um, and we were up there and around three o'clock in the morning, we heard the heavy footfalls. Uh, there was a small gravel pathway that, that was right next to our cabin. Unfortunately, the cabin where the, uh, uh, where the window was, it had slats that, that went down. So you couldn't see out, you know, you just get the light coming in, but you couldn't see out. So we had the light that was coming in and something blocked the light and it was more um, vertical than it was horizontal. So it was uh, just a single object that, that passed by blocked that light. And we just heard those footfalls the whole time. And yeah, I even had my wife convinced, okay, there was something weird about that because there was no one else out there. Um, we do get elk through there, but the elk, they they make a specific noise with their hoops um and this was as tall as an elk would be but it, it just blocked that light completely as it as it passed by um so that was one experience the other experience was um uh, i was with a good friend of mine uh gwendolyn purcell from god knockers wonderful wonderful uh, investigator researcher uh, we were in the Allegheny National Forest with another person, and we actually were part of a bigger expedition at that time. And we had a group that was at a base camp, uh, which, again, they had the fire going. You know, they were all, it was mostly the older people that didn't want to be out, you know, walking around. So they were uh, about 300 yards down the road at a campsite. We were 300 yards the opposite direction. And then up maybe about uh, 20 or 30 yards from uh, from where this old dirt road was, up on like a smaller road, which was uh, it led to a gas well. So we were over by the gas well. We didn't have much activity going on. And then all of a sudden, we get a radio call from the people at the base camp that they heard a growl. So that could have been anything. That could have been a, a coyote. That could have been anything you know at that point so we said all right you know 10-4 and we're sitting there and then all of a sudden we hear three wood knocks and i'm like dude that <laughs> came from right between the camp uh, where the campfire was to us so we called them hey did you do a wood knocks they're like oh heck no you know we're 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 sitting here we're like all you know bundled up by the by the campfire i said all right and then all of a sudden we heard the footfalls coming up the gas well road, but the only problem was it was on the other side. Now this was in October. And so we still had vegetation on the trees. Um, Gwendolyn had the thermal. She had a, a thermal that was connected to her cell phone and we had a heat signature on the other side of the trees, but we didn't you know we we just couldn't see what it was could you tell how tall it was it, possibly it was definitely taller than me so i'm six foot three six foot four so this is probably closer to seven foot um because you could definitely see the that whole 
uh, side of the shrubs was just lit up uh, by something. So then we finally got to an open, it would have went to an open area. We thought we saw something peeking behind a tree. So I'm sitting here with, with Gwendolyn and the third person. I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to go see what this is. So I started walking in. Whatever it was had, you know, we just didn't get any more thermal hits at that point. But my head was definitely um, smaller than where whatever was peeking behind the tree was. Could it have been an owl? Could it have been any? I don't know. You know, and uh, circumstantially, though, what we do is we look at the fact that we heard a growl at the base camp. We heard three wood knocks. <clears throat> then we heard the footfalls, and we were getting a, a heat signature. Then we saw something possibly pe- uh, peeking behind a tree. So once it got into the open, um, so circumstantially, it kind of leads us towards it, it could have been a Sasquatch. Um, can we say for sure? Absolutely not. Um, but the one thing is, though, is that uh, uh, Gwendolyn, I, I was super impressed with her that night. You know, she, the two of us, you know, we we were right there, you know, trying to, you know, uh, uh, basically hone in on what this was. And it was the freaking brush, you know, that, that was in the way. Two weeks later, I was out um, not that far from there. I was about 20, uh, 20 miles north. And I had found a, a big footprint. Um, I actually, uh, I have a video up on my uh, YouTube page about it. Um, I went, I casted it and I go back to the truck uh, and the truck is parked, uh, you know, about 50, 60 yards away. And then off along the road, there was, and I'm, I'm saying that was probably about maybe 75, 80 yards from me um i'm at my truck there's nothing going on no cars no people no nothing and all of a sudden this single tree just starts shaking and the way i explained it was it looked like one of those um uh you know like when people would go into those uh, phone booths with the money swirling around that's how violent it was coming like the leaves were just shaking coming down so I'm sitting there and the one thing I forgot was I should have hit the recorder at that time, but I was just so in shock watching this tree getting shook. So I finally uh, was sitting here like, okay, you know, by the time I got my camera up, it was already over. And I'm sitting here like, listen, if there's anyone out here, if you're a Bigfoot, I'm not here to hurt you. You know, and I'm saying it just like this. I'm not out here to hurt you. I don't have any weapons on me. I don't have anything. I'm just here to do research. You know, if you want to come out and, you know, get a picture taken, absolutely. But I'm not here to hurt you at all. So that kind of, you know, I was like, oh boy, you know, something, something's definitely going on. So I finally went back up got the cast. I should have let it dry a little bit longer, but at this point I was like, eh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so I got the cast, come back. I go over to the spot where the tree was. And what I noticed was there was a seven foot ditch right where that tree was. So, and unfortunately it's all rock going through there. So it was a drainage ditch that was probably made in like the 1930s, um, just, to, you know, for, for flood evasion and, and such, but there was this ditch. So something could have been leaning in that ditch and shaking that 
to let me know that they were there. I would have rather them to come up over the bank and I could have gotten a picture, but you know, unfortunately that didn't happen, but that was one of those uh, cases where circumstantially um, it could go either. I mean, it could have been a deer. It could have been a, a, an angry squirrel, but the fact that I got a fresh track, you know, not that far from there, and there's no other people out in the woods. I was the only one that, that I passed from going off the main road uh, to about, you know, 10, 10 miles in. I didn't pass anyone else. Um, there was no one else that, that could have done that. And again, I can always say it was the, the angry squirrel. It, it could have been a deer. If it was a deer, I would have seen it at some point, whatever it was, did not want to make itself known. And the only way that that tree could have been shook like that was, you know, something down at the bottom, just shaking it. So it was a, it was a pretty interesting experience. So leading into the second question here, what do I take when I'm out in the woods? So I just got myself a new backpack that's more or less like a, um, a weight bearing backpack. So that way I can take a little more supplies in. Um, but Is it one of the Squatch survival gear ones? No, 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 no. I, uh, um, I don't know if I could, if I can plug a brand or not, but I, I, I just got a mystery ranch bag. I got it on sale. So, um, it, that thing is incredible. Um, I can put I have the 45 liter bag on the back right now for day trips, or I can put an 80 liter bag on the back for, uh, for, you know, like being out there for a week or two. Um, but, um, this thing will carry like 150 pounds without any, like, you know, like it doesn't hurt your, your back, your shoulders, you'll feel in your legs, but, um, People you don't know, know how, how important it is to have a really good hiking backpack. Like I went oh out of my, my God, way to yeah. buy one of the Squatch survival gear ones because I went on a Squatch yes. trip and my last backpack wasn't pulling right. So I got this one. So it has like an extra strap and pulls over, but yes. super important, especially not throwing it your is, back out of whack doing long hikes. The, the one thing is, is that when, when people go out and buy backpacks um, and especially if they're going to be uh, putting any sort of weight in them, Go for something a little uh, with a little more quality, with a little better name to it, because of the fact that you're going to be carrying, you know, anywhere from you know twenty to to forty pounds on your back. After a couple miles, that's going to stink. You know, like you know, your shoulders are going to hurt, your back's going to hurt. Um, I know with this one here, it has the it has a, a belt that basically will keep all the weight you know, on your hips. And there's also load straps so that it, it basically coordinates where that weight's going to be. If it's going to be closer to your back or a little farther from your back, uh, depending on if you have a lighter um, uh, pack or, or a heavier pack. But um, it's things like that that uh, really do count. Because again, I, I had this pack on uh, over the weekend. I had uh, 20 pounds just in the back. And then plus I had a chainsaw because I was doing some work on a, on a property. And that chainsaw, I mean, that that's a, a fairly heavy chainsaw. It felt like I was just carrying a book bag with a, with a laptop in it, you know? And uh, if I can go out and hike in, you know, three or four miles with just that, you know, you're going to be happier when you're out in the woods, you know, rather than if you, if you have it and you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're it's digging into your shoulders, your back sore, you really don't, you know, it's not going to make you, as pleasant, you know, when you're, when you're out there. So, um, having a good backpack is always, um, a very big plus. And again, 
um you know any of the the backpacks that that you had mentioned um you know even going into some of the the uh, other quality brands like mystery ranch or um you know cooey or or any of the other ones are really uh you know it, it really does pay dividends in the end but um what i do is i have I'll just go into some of my survival gear. So um, I do have a water filtration kit uh, that I always carry because the one thing is, is I'm not going to be carrying in, uh, you know, a gallon of water, you know, a gallon of water weighs quite a bit of weight. Now I can, I can handle it on my backpack, but why do I want to put that extra weight on when I could do a water filtration kit uh, into a bladder and boom, I can get a good uh, quality water to drink. Um, if you haven't drank from a water filtration kit from a from a fresh mountain spring, it's definitely worth it. Um, I will also, if I'm just going out for the day, I'll still bring a, a, a overnight survival kit. So I'm going to have a blanket with me. I'm going to have a, a survival blanket. I'm going to have matches. Um, I'm going to have fire starter. I'm going to have a few other items there. Uh, a, a first aid kit is absolutely essential. Um, the other thing that I'll, I'll do is I will let my, my wife know where I'm going. Uh, I'll say, listen, you know, I'm going to be, I may not be in this specific spot, but I'm going to be in this specific area. That way, if she doesn't hear and I'll let her know, like, listen, um, I'll let you know if, if we're having activity, I may not call you or, or text you until six or seven in the morning, but you'll get that text. If you don't get that text in 24 hours, make a phone call out to the state police or, or the, the, the ranger's office. Um, I'll also have, uh, you know, my, uh, cell phone, which I'll have extra batteries for. I'll have those little portable batteries that, um, if it does start dying, I can, I can plug that in. Uh, that'll give me at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, 12 hours, uh, of, uh, battery life of, you know, running it full. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else in my bag. And I'm going to have to do a video too on, uh, on what I carry in my, in my bag just for survival itself. Um, and of course I'll carry a knife with me. Um, and again, that's, that's going to be, I'll take a, a good survival knife that I could also use. Um, I can use the butt of it as a hammer, um, you know, something that that's going to be essentially, uh, fairly useful in the, in the woods, not just as a, as a blade itself. Um, but as for, um, you know, the other thing too, is if I'm going in and I know it's going to be longer than overnight, uh, I've been using, uh, the Garmin inReach, which is actually a GPS satellite based, uh, uh, communication device that I, I hit a button. It lets my wife know, Hey, I'm at this latitude and longitude. I'm okay. But if I'm sitting there and, you know, God forbid I get bit by a rattlesnake or I end up, you know, busting my, my knee or my ankle, I can hit a red button and they'll send a cavalry out. So I'll have that. Now for my, uh, you know, research stuff, what I do is I'll take uh, gallon size uh, plastic bags. I'll put uh, a pound or two of uh, plaster in there and I'll put a water bottle in there. And what that does is, you know, basically I have a kit all set. If I find tracks somewhere, all I have to do is take that bottle out, uh, unscrew it, uh, pour the water in there, mix it up and boom, it goes right in for uh, right in for the track. So 
Um, that's a really good backcountry tip to uh, 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 to have. And again, I'll I'll probably go into that with a uh, with a later video. Um, you know, and I'll also have uh, you know film equipment with me, uh, whether it's my uh, digital camera, my cell phone's going to be ready. You know, for any sort of pictures, um, audio recorders. Um, and I always carry, you know, some sort of tape measure or, you know, and that, the one time I was kind of caught without it, but, uh, when I did find a track, but I usually do carry some sort of uh, tape measure with me so that if I do find a track before I cast it, I'll take photos of it and I'll have it out there so that you can see what the, what the uh, length of the track is, what the width of the track is and such. So that, um, you know, when it goes out to be re like if I send it out to Dr. Meldrum or a Cliff Barockman uh, for them to review that they can see what the, uh, you know, what the size of that print is uh, based on, based on that measurement. So that's the kind of stuff I, I take out with me uh, when I'm out in the woods. So I do kind of come more prepared than, uh, than uh, I guess some people, but uh, that's never a bad thing. I'd rather be safe than sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, if there was two top survival tricks that you could teach somebody, um, what would they be? Like if, if there was just two tricks that you feel that every single person that's should ever go out, that everyone out in the woods should know, what would, what would the two be? I would probably have to say the first one is fire, you know, how to, how to start a fire. Um, it, that is essential to, uh, survival and it's not just essential just for, you know, what, if for keeping yourself warm or trying to keep yourself dry, cooking food or, or boiling water, but the other thing too is when you when you do have a fire like that, it really um, it instills some confidence. You know that things are going to be okay. It's almost by looking into the fire, you'll you'll feel better about it. Um, the other thing too is uh, learning uh, about knots. Um, believe it or not, like you know there there's plenty of times I've been out in the woods with. Uh, with other people and, and, you know, just learning how to do a square knot, you know, is important if you have to build an emergency shelter, um, you know, learning other knots so that it, you can, uh, you know, again, it, it's more for the shelter, but uh, if you do need to, um, if, if you need to build a sprain you know, or um, have a brace for a sprained knee or, or a sprained ankle and you need to put something together, having something like that is extremely important. Uh, so definitely, uh, I mean, the fire though is the top, um, you know, the, the top thing for, for people, you know, being out in the back country, being able to, to start, you know, to, to have a fire, a little campfire going is, uh, just, uh, such an important, uh, thing. If you're lost out in the woods, you know, people don't want to be in the dark if they can have that little bit of fire going and again, uh, just to keep them warm, but, but also for that light, it, it really impacts that person's um, ability to uh, to keep going. It's also like a marker too. So if you have a fire going in the middle of the night and they know somebody's yes. missing in that area, that's that's another component. So as soon as it gets dark, regardless, absolutely. always make sure you got a fire going just so you can kind of have some kind of signal where you are. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. So, so, uh, kind of digging back into kind of like your local stuff. I know you said when you mm-hmm. first started your page, uh, you're kind of tr- trying to dig into some local, uh, folklore and stuff too. Yes. Uh, what's some yep. of the other different types of, uh, creatures you've dug into as far as your area goes? 
Well, um, one interesting creature that uh, we continue to get sightings on uh, throughout the years are uh, what we call the Thunderbirds. Um, they seem to be very prevalent along the Allegheny Mountains. Um, you know, people seeing these birds that that have a wingspan, you know, I, I've heard them, you know, going anywhere from, you know, 10 feet to 30 feet. Uh, now, we've seen eagles. Uh, we're getting a large uh, influx of eagles again. But uh, these things, you know, make the eagles look like dwarves. So that has always been an interesting topic on, you know, could there be something that, you know, that does, you know, migrate from, you know, maybe the, the northern boreal uh, region, you know, of Canada to uh, maybe South America, you know, and, you know, they just like using the, uh, the Appalachians or the Rockies to, uh, to make their, their trip back and forth. Um, and that's one that I, I've heard enough of, um, of people talking about that. And I, I think there, there may be some credibility uh, to it. Um, and again, you know, people are finding nests, you know, which I assume are eagles nests, but um, without a game camera or without, you know, any sort of study on that, we don't know what may be using these, these large nests, you know, they're up in the trees. So that's one that we dealt with. Um, a lot of it though, I, I kind of, when it comes to more of the, the man-like type cryptids, I do kind of point it back towards, uh, Bigfoot. And the, the one thing is, is, uh, we're in an area where there's a lot of Amish, uh, a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch, and I've talked to a lot of the Amish people, and they and they hadn't mentioned about seeing uh, something they they described as goat man or, or ram ram man, you know, because it it looked like it, they had the head of a goat or the head of a ram, uh, you know, maybe sometimes it has horns, sometimes it doesn't, um, but they always describe it kind of the same way that it's a, a hair covered humanoid, and the one thing is, is that a lot of the Amish haven't had that exposure to uh, popular culture about Bigfoot or about other cryptids. So they may be confusing Bigfoot um, with this Ram man or the, the goat man. Um, so that's always a possibility. Now with those, I, I kind of hear less and less about them. That was more of a big thing back in the 1970s. Uh, but um you know, they, to the Amish, you know, they, they, they do refer to the, and they think it's a spiritual being because they think because of the goat or the ram that it's, you know, some evil entity. Um, when in fact it could be just a Bigfoot that's making its way through. So, um, do a lot of the, the descriptions include, include the horns at least for them, or is it like they kind of leave that part out and that's kind of where the translation comes into. I, I think it's more about it's lost in translation. So the, uh, the ones that um, I've heard about, um, I haven't been able to talk to the witnesses directly, but from, you know, it, it, it's basically like a spoken culture or spoken, spoken lore um, was that uh, they, they believed that it had uh, uh, horns. Um, but again, that could, that could be matted hair. That could be, um, I know going back to, you might just be uh, assuming that seeing as they yes. see it as like an evil being, they kind of just add that into Correct. the description too. Correct. And the one, and then even going back even further, we, we look at the Iroquois and uh, which were the, the primary native Americans in this area. Um, 
and they talk about the stone giants and which is basically their Bigfoot. But uh, the way they called the, the stone giants is that they had almost like a mat. And I've talked to people from the Iroquois nation about this. They, they, their hair may be matted with mud, um, with other detritus materials. So it looks like it's almost like a stone, you know, in, in their, uh, in their fur, as opposed to being, if we think of a typical Bigfoot, we think of, you know, a clean, you know, a clean hair, you know, uh, for like the ones out in the Pacific Northwest, Pacific Northwest also has a different climate and a different, um, you know, geology than, you know, the, uh, Appalachian mountains, uh, uh, the Adirondacks. So it's very well possible that, you know, uh, the ones that they were seeing back then, you know, would have that, you know, caked mud or, or caked dirt detritus material on them when they saw them. See, and assumably too, like they, there probably isn't really a reason for them to take a bath or to try to clean it off because it just benefits them being more camouflage too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, again, a lot of these, um, you know, m- myths and lures, uh, and legends, you know, kind of come together at, at some point and you're like, well, you know, could it be this, you know, could it, could it be, you know, that they're seeing, you know, this animal or could it be that they're seeing, you know, uh, this type of creature. And it, it really does kind of point in the direction of a, of a Bigfoot funny thing about language is that it's very perspective based and at least for English you break things down and it's very much so like call it as you see it so yes it, it, it of course in different languages where they have different terms for different things it kind of translates different so even just like kind of even connecting it with like dog man theoretically you have like yes. hyena man in Africa and then you have yes. like wolf man and then you have dog man it all kind of just it's all the same thing yes. it's just different perspectives of the same thing and different names for it Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, I, you know, uh, until we actually have a body or some DNA, we, we're not going to ever know, like, you know, we can hypothesize, but um, until we actually get that, you know, we don't know. And we're going by images or we're going by uh, witness statements. And, uh, you know, some of them are, are pretty compelling, you know, and uh, when you bring up dog, man, I, I think of, uh, the beast of seven shoots, which, uh, which I has that baboon looking face to it. And, um, what's kind of scarier about the, about the whole thing is if you look closely, it looks like it's carrying a dog. Um, if you look at that specific picture, so, uh, you know, Again, is that a dog man? Is that a Bigfoot? We don't know, you know, and and hopefully science will will come back on our side one of these days and uh, and we'll be able to hopefully answer that question. I mean, even just making theories too, um, there's always the factor of like uh, misunderstanding what you're seeing and starting to relate them as two different things. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, as far as humans go, there's different races that live in different regions. Like we're all still humans, of course, but we look very different. It could be the same with these things where dogmen, Sasquatch, they're all within the same family. It's just they're different variations and they have different temperaments because, you know, they live in different regions or they uh, maybe have a little bit different ancestor build to get to the point where they're at because even back in the day there was multiple types of like human beings that all started to converge into one race eventually but correct and and again uh you know uh humans adapt to their environment so 
uh, if you have a creature that that adapts to their environment as well, um, you know you're going to see some possibly different characteristics than you would normally see from uh, you know from that animal. I think of black bears. Um, black bears in certain areas don't hibernate, you know, like they would. Like you, you, you were always told that you know they go in the den and and they don't come out until the spring. Um, I know, in especially in the eastern United States, males, you know, uh, they they go they they hang out somewhere and just kind of chill. They don't do a lot of hunting. They don't you know, but they're not in that full hibernation. Um, but one thing I, I did find is that the black bears in Florida are having a smaller time, uh, like the, their hibernation does not extend like the hibernation of black bears in other parts of the country. So uh, if you have a black bear that that's making a, a small change uh, to adapt to their environment, um, who's to say that, you know, uh, what people think of as skunk ape, um, you know, hasn't adapted over, how many hundreds or thousands of years to living in the swamp environment compared to, you know, uh, you know, their relative cousin in the Pacific Northwest who, you know, doesn't have that, that type of swamp um, in hot and humid environment. They're, they're dealing with humidity, but, you know, with all the rainfall, but they're not dealing with that extreme heat. They're not dealing with, you know, the, the mud they're, they're dealing with, you know, more mountain, you know, mountainous areas. I was actually theorizing about this the other day on a show, talking about how typically the farther north you get, it seems like animals get bigger regardless. So that kind of would fit in with the yes. whole like skunk ape thing that they're a little bit smaller. And uh, we're starting yes. to kind of theorize about the hair of like why they would have long shaggy hair. And uh, they mentioned the guy I had on was mentioning that he'd have to wear special pants for like snakes. So we didn't get bit. So I was kind of wondering if yes. maybe they adapted to have longer shaggier hair. So it's more of a protective barrier. So if a snake tries to bite them, they're just getting hair rather than actually getting yeah a piece of their flesh and 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 that's definitely a, a good possibility or the other thing too is the longer hair may help them insulate um better against the heat um i know with certain uh, like golden retrievers uh they have uh different types of coats you know in the winter in the summertime and um you know you may have you know a, a creature that you know with the longer hair I, I know uh, sometimes they say don't shave your dog in the summertime because they use that hair to kind of keep the, the sunlight, you know, off their skin. And that could very well be, you know, an adaptation of the, uh, of the Sasquatch in, uh, in, in, you know, the southern region of the United States. I mean, it even could possibly be camouflaged because they can kind of blend in with the Spanish moss better because it kind of has that look to it. So they can kind of blend in into the shadows. And even going into like the size too, you go into the things that are farther north and they're going to be going after bigger prey because food isn't as readily available, especially during like the winter months. They probably like stock up, get a little bit bigger to maintain Mm -hmm. their weight and temperature. But when it comes to the ones down south and like skunk apes that are in the swamp, there's no reason for them to go after a big apex predator because there's fish everywhere. Uh, there's bugs everywhere things like that so rather than trying to load up on one big meal they're able to eat all the time continuously so there's not a reason for them to load up and get big because they have a constant supply of small easy to grab food 
I, uh, the one, uh, the one video that comes to mind is that I believe it's from Mississippi with that, uh, that young boy that was out hunting and, uh, you know, he's up there. He doesn't, he was out squirrel hunting and, you know, he sees this thing and it looks like it's, it's grabbing grubs, you know, out of a, out of a rotten tree. And then of course it stands up and the, and the kid, kid runs, but that's still a pretty compelling video, uh, for sure. And, uh, and again, you know, that, that's a food source that is high in protein, easy to collect. And, you know, uh, if you're a, a 300, 400 pound, uh, you know, creature, you know, that's going to give you all that, that meal is going to go a long way. And I'm sure it's in abundance on there too. It's not even just Absolutely. like, it's small. Yes, but they're able to find it readily available yes. in so many places yep. that they could go up to 10 different trees and grab a bunch of different grubs and get a full meal Absolutely. out of it. Absolutely. And then, and then they should be, uh, they should be set then. So, you know, but, uh, but, and then on top of that, you have the fish, you have amphibians, you have, uh, reptiles, just so much there that they can eat. Um, you know, as opposed to being in an area like, uh, again, the, um, you know, maybe in the, uh, you know, the upper corners of the, the Rocky mountains where you don't have, you know, you might have some, uh, some rodents, but really you don't have that abundant food like you would in the Southern United States. Um, uh, we're in the mid Atlantic area, the mid South region. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, that may be where they're, you know, Hey, that moose that they can get is going, you know, that's going to have to last them, you know, for a while. Uh, so starting to kind of wrap up towards the end and I would definitely love to have yep. you come back on soon and, uh, you know, definitely. we can get into another in-depth conversation, but yeah, absolutely. I always like to leave with uh, words of wisdom from the guests to the listeners. So if there's any words of wisdom you could bestow on the listeners in general or inspiring Sasquatch researchers, mm -hmm. what would it be? Well, the biggest thing that I want to put out there is we are citizen scientists and by going out, you know, following some just general scientific theory rules and going uh, through and, you know, trying to, uh, uh, you know, find the best evidence, I think that the discovery of Sasquatch is going to be made. Uh, in a matter of 10 years. Uh, we have extremely good cameras out now. We have people that are learning more about the behaviors, more about uh, where they might be filmed, more about how to, how to act more, uh, when they do see them. I think it's going to be from people listening to, to shows like this, from reading uh, some of the books, especially some of the updated books, uh, you know, that um, sometimes you're going to feel that fear if you do have an encounter, but maybe remembering that, you know, there really hasn't been any, you know, uh, attacks, you know, well, technically since the 1920s, but um, <laughs> that was only in Ape Canyon, but there's been no real attacks. There's been no, uh, you know, real harm that that's been, that's been caused uh, to people out there doing research. So if you can keep uh, a, a level head when you're out in the woods and you're able to collect that evidence and, and possibly get a picture, a video, um, it's going to be from, again, a citizen scientist such as yourself 
that, you know, we may end up, you know, cracking this mystery. So I, I definitely, uh, you know, think that everyone, you know, has that capability. This has been an absolutely awesome conversation, and I'm really looking forward to getting the ne- to the next time we actually oh, just sit down has. and have yep. a conversation. Uh, for anybody that wants to look into your yes. work, look into your survival stuff, uh, where can they come and find you at? Okay, well, I have uh, the Cryptic Wilderness Facebook page. I don't update it a whole lot, but I, I'm still I still manage that um, and uh, still post some stuff from time to time. I'm on Cryptic Wilds. If you just type in Cryptic Wilderness uh, for Twitter, um, it's Cryptic Wilds One. I think is my uh, my official handle, and I also have the Cryptic Wilderness YouTube channel. So that has a couple uh, interesting videos on it. And uh, in the next uh, few months, uh, as uh, spring and summer come in, I'm definitely going to be adding some more. So uh, please, uh, you know, give a watch to any of the videos. And, uh, and uh, you know, you can also reach me on Facebook. Uh, my name's under Matt Mickey Arner. Um, send me a friend request and uh, I'd be more than happy to uh, talk Bigfoot. So I really appreciate you making the time to come on today, man. And uh, like I said, this has been a great conversation. Yep. Awesome. Awesome conversation. So, and I definitely look forward to, uh, to having another one with you and bringing a couple friends along. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, later on, you know, maybe we'll get uh, Gwen to come on with me. So, yeah, that would be absolutely awesome. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Well, I, I thank you very much. Uh, you've been an incredible host and, uh, you know, I can't wait to, to listen to the, uh, listen to the broadcast. If you guys enjoyed this conversation and you really enjoyed the show, if you guys don't mind taking a second to drop a review or a rating for the show, I would definitely appreciate it. Uh, if any of you guys want to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, there's multiple ways to do so. You guys can either shoot me a message on Instagram, uh, you guys can email me at increaseourrealitypodcast at outlook.com, or you can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form up at the top. That'll go directly to my email, and it's just a matter of time before I respond to you guys. Because, of course, I respond to every single one of you because I would love to have a conversation with all of you guys. Uh, everything that I mentioned, all available under the link tree, of course. That's L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Increase of Our Reality Podcast. Or you can go down to the show description. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation, and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.